0: I'd like to welcome you to our study tonight and our midweek prayer time, and uh, we're going to sing a song to open up, so let's bow together for a word of prayer, and then we will be singing a Christmas song together. So let's bow for prayer. Father, we're very grateful for uh, this opportunity to gather together as a body, and I pray for the young people in the back as they're in their classes. I pray that those classes will go very well, you'd work in hearts, and I pray that As we prepare ourselves for the Christmas season, as we go into uh, Christmas Eve this Sunday, and we have a special service in the evening, I pray that uh, we'd be able to see many folks come out who maybe don't typically come to services, and I pray that uh, this time spent uh, focusing in on the miracle of the Incarnation and the purpose that Christ came to save his people from their sins, that you would work in hearts and that uh, people would understand their need of a savior, and to place their faith in Christ. And I pray that as we work through this very sensitive topic this evening, that you would continue to give us a special measure of wisdom and understanding. And as I address these topics, I pray that I would do it in a way that is very helpful to each person here tonight. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, 201. Oh, come all ye faithful. 201. Oh, come all ye faithful. Let's Sing all three verses, please. singing way to sing out okay well we have been working our way through the sermon on the mount on our wednesday nights and so i'd like to invite you to turn with me back to matthew chapter five and as i mentioned last week we are going to spend quite a few weeks dealing with a topic that is in front of us tonight and we're talking about what the bible has to say about the issue of sexual fidelity Or we could, another way to put this is, what does Jesus say about moral purity, okay? And Matthew 5, 27 is where we'll begin. We'll work our way all the way down to verse 32. Here's what the text says. You have heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thine right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. Whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Now what I'd like to do is I'd like to pick up with what we talked last week. And I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of a reminder of where we started. Last week, we gave this summary statement. The following portion of the Sermon on the Mount Emphasizes the importance of marriage and the danger of disregarding God's design for marriage and sexuality. And if you remember, the topic that we addressed before we came to this topic was the topic of murder and then anger in the heart. And Jesus talks about how the scriptures not only say thou shalt not kill, meaning don't murder, but it's more than just the act of murder That matters to God but it's actually the hatred it's the anger in the heart that ultimately is what leads to the act of murder and so Jesus is doing the exact same thing with this topic of of adultery and what's important too for us to understand about this issue is that Jesus gets into another topic which uh, could take us into lots and lots of different rabbit trails and that is the issue of divorce someone might say well you know uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to commit adultery, but if I don't want to be married to this person anymore, I'll just put them away, and then I can go ahead and I can legally marry somebody else, and then, well, I haven't committed adultery because I'm good, right? And Jesus says, no, that's not the case. And so, he addresses that issue. But before we actually get into the specific content of what Jesus says, which we most certainly will get into, I think it's important for us to understand the way that Jesus approaches this issue. And in order for us to appreciate the way he approaches the issue, we actually have to go to Matthew 19, because in Matthew 19, you have people that have heard what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. They come to him with a question, and the way that Jesus responds to them, in fact, it is very, very instructive. So that's kind of where we're going to be going as we work our way through this. We want to look at the way that Jesus handled this question, and he handled that question by saying, well, do you understand marriage? Do you understand why God created male and female and why he instituted marriage? Because if you understand those things, then there are certain questions you don't even need to ask. Or there are certain questions when you ask them, you already know what the answer would be. It would completely make sense what Jesus is going to say. And so we also spent some time kind of defining the concepts or the terms that are an important part of what Jesus is saying. The first question that we answered last week was, what is adultery? In verse 27, he says, thou shalt not commit adultery. We talked about the tremendous warnings in Scripture about this issue of adultery. Proverbs six twenty-seven: can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? He goes on later in the text and he says, whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding and he that doeth it destroyeth his own soul a wound and dishonor shall he shall he get in his repro- reproach shall not be wiped away and so the definition that we gave after those warnings was that adultery is the one flesh union of two people who are not married someone has violated the covenant that they have before God with their spouse The second question we asked is, well, what is marriage? And that's where we went to Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 6, where Jesus says to them, have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause? And the question is, what's the cause? Well, the cause is marriage. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, there are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And so we talked about how there are certain components that are an essential part to our understanding of marriage. First of all, we have the word lawful. And when I, when I define lawful, I don't mean what does the law of America say, but what does God say is lawful. In other words, he talks about one man and he talks about one woman. He doesn't talk about one man and two women or one man and three women or one woman and two men and one woman and three men he doesn't do that he says one man one woman he doesn't say one man and one man or one woman and one woman he's very very particular about his definition one man one woman so any type of union that a society may call a marriage is a mirage if it doesn't meet the biblical definition so We would say it may be lawful in America, but it's not lawful in the eyes of God. The second word is the word consent. This is not a forced issue, okay? Now, obviously, most of the marriages in the Bible were arranged between families, but there was a consent between those families and between those individuals. And so, it's not like someone was taken by force and they were forced to be married to this person, but they actually chose to enter into this covenantal agreement. And then we move to the third word, which is the word covenant. The idea is that marriage was formally agreed upon, and there was a sense in which marriage had obligation not just to the individual that you enter into covenant with, but there's also a responsibility to the families that are involved as well. And there's a responsibility to those people who are going to witness the marriage. We don't just witness to celebrate, but we witness because they're, they're taking a solemn vow in the presence of witnesses and before God. And then we talked about the fact that it's also before God. Even in the pagan worlds, marriage was viewed as a covenant that invoked the deities that they served. I don't know if you realize that, but that was a part of the understanding. And so there was a religious aspect to the marriage covenant. So they understood, look, marriage is for the good of society. It's for the good of families. And so, this issue of covenant was important. And then we had the word consummated. In other words, it is a one flesh union to be exclusive between one man and one woman till death separates them. So, each of those words are very important. And we have to understand that this is a part of what we call the covenant of marriage. Then we moved on to another question, and I spent actually a lot of time dealing with the the, the definition of marriage, and then I got into this third question of what is lust. And in verse 28, he says the following. He says, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, okay? That is very carefully worded. The idea is that there is an intention behind the look. There is a premeditation behind the look it's not just I saw something it's I looked for something do you understand the difference between those two things okay there are certain things that we come in contact with that are very sinful they're very immoral and the fact is we see them and we pass on and it's not something that we dwell upon it's not something we pursue it's not something we desire it's something we come in contact with there is a great difference between that and saying I'm looking for something to satisfy a desire that God says is forbidden in the way that I'm choosing to do this. And so someone is making a choice to look with the intent to satisfy sexual passions in a way that is forbidden biblically. And so we talked about this issue of lust. Galatians 5:16. He says, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then as he moves his way through the text, he says the works of the flesh are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Every single one of those words, we kind of explained them a bit last week, these are sexual sins of different varieties. And then at the end, he talks about revelings. And I know drunkenness is not a sexual sin, but it is a sin of appetite, and many times drunkenness... And in morality, they go together. And that's what he means when he talks about revelings. He's talking about an environment where people are intoxicated. They're not thinking clearly. And they are acting in a very debased way. And then he also describes wrath in several ways. He he uses the terms hatred, variance, emulation, wrath, strife, sedition, heresy, envy. Every single one of those words falls into that category of anger in the heart or anger expressed or anger that is being acted upon through our words and through manipulative behavior. So the vast majority of the ways he describes the works of the flesh are in the anger or in the sexual immorality categories. And then we have, uh, he, he, he mentions idolatry and witchcraft. And interestingly, a lot of times idolatry is just I would like to serve a God that is made in my image rather than the God that I'm made in the image of, okay? And again, what what happens in in, in these contexts is that people use idolatry to satisfy their sexual passions or their anger passions. And so we spent a lot of time dealing with that. We talked about covetousness and entitlement and how lust is a matter of the thought and also a matter of the action. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to kind of pick up with that last piece and and pick up in question number four. I don't know if that's on there. But question number four is what is the difference between temptation and the sin of lust? Okay. I I clearly made a distinction between what we could say is lust, the sin, and the temptation to lust. They're, They're very close, okay, but they're different. One is a sin and one is an enticement into sin. And sometimes the line between those two pieces is very difficult for us to discern. I would just put it very simply this way. If we know that the, 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 the line between the two is very tight, I would say we should probably stay as far away from the line as we possibly can so that we're not getting into the realm of going, have I drifted beyond just I'm tempted and now I've acted upon it in some way. And you'll see this by the way that I... See, show you how the scriptures tell us to respond to temptation. But let me d- define it this way. Temptation is the passing thought or opportunity that may lead to a discontented disposition toward, we could say our spouse, we could say our circumstances, we could say our financial situation. You could put all kinds of different potential categories in there. But it is a discontentedment. It is me wanting to act on and to entertain desires that are forbidden to be entertained in that such a way. And so look at these verses. The first one is James chapter 1 verse 12. Here's what it says. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now, when we see the word endure, do we think of something that happens one time and it's over with? Or does that kind of give us the impression that there's a little bit more of a duration to this particular matter? And I would have to say that a lot of temptations, there is a duration to the matter. It's not like, oh, here's my opportunity. I said no and I walk away and it's all over. I don't have to worry about this again. In fact, when we talk about lusts like sexual lusts, this is something that will that will plague you day after day after day after day after day. After day. It's true. If you don't establish some boundaries and you don't, and you don't establish good patterns of, of living and thinking and acting, you're going to fall into this category over and over and over again. Or when we talk about this issue of anger, let's say someone's wronged us and we say, I've decided that I'm not going to hold on to that anger and bitterness and I'm putting it away and as soon as you say, it never comes back, right? No, it doesn't work that way at all. I wish it did work that way. Make it so simple if it was that way. But no, in fact, sometimes we feel these massive waves of irritation, of anger, all these thoughts come back, and we deal with those things, and then for a little while, things kind of subside, and then it comes back, and we can't even sometimes understand what triggers it to come back. It might just be some simple arrangement of of, of circumstances that we didn't control, we have no control over at all, and it comes. It comes. So when he says, blessed is the man that endureth temptation, when he's tried, he shall receive a crown of life, he's indicating that temptation and sin are not the same thing. Temptation is opportunity. And he's also indicating that temptation is something that may come over and over and over and over again. It may be a thing that we deal with for seasons and then it kind of subsides and then we deal with it again and it subsides and we deal with it again because he's giving the indication there's a day when we stand before Christ and we have battled with temptation over the course of our lives and when we have done the right thing, you know what, God's going to, he's going to make note of that. It's Kind of a fascinating thing to think about. James 1.14 He says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Now the word lust has the idea of a passion or a desire. And what's interesting about the Greek term is that it is the context that determines if the passion and desire is sinful or if it's not sinful. I'll give you a simple example. Some of you may know this, maybe maybe not. But when the Bible talks about the qualifications of someone who is in ministry, he says, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. What you may not realize is that that word actually is the same term for an intense longing. Same word, okay? Now, we could we determine if that desire is a sinful desire, or if it is a godly desire, pretty much based on what follows in the qualifications of a pastor. Because this is someone who's not to be controlled by their emotions and their passions in every single area of life. Whether it's money, whether it's their interaction with the opposite sex, whether it is power, whether, whether it's handling conflicts, lots and lots of different areas that are addressed in there. So we're not talking about a person just dominated by their passions. We're talking about a person who has a godly desire and longing to do the work of ministry. Which I would say... Having been a pastor for a while, I don't think it's a natural desire to have. <laughs> I really don't. I'm being very honest. And it's most certainly not a desire that, that, that will be sustained over the long haul if God is not continually rekindling that desire in your heart. So in verse 14 of James, he says, a man is tempted when he's drawn of his own lust. So the desires that we have internally they get bent toward, we could say, illegitimate ways of satisfying those desires. That's what happens. I mean, you take something like anger. If something is evil, I should hate it, okay? There's no question about it. If I love what is good, I hate what is evil, okay? However, that passion can very easily be channeled in a sinful direction because I have a sin nature. We talk about sexual passion. I mean... Proverbs chapter 5 and Proverbs chapter 7. If you're, if you're a teenager and you're reading through that in your devotions, it probably make you blush a little bit. Okay, why is that? Because you go, oh, is, is this okay for me to read this? And sexual desire is something God created. It's not, it's not evil. It's not sinful. What's sinful is when we take those passions and we begin to try to satisfy them in ways that God says are forbidden. Off-limits, sinful. And obviously this passage has a lot to say about that. So temptation is the opportunity. It could be a passing opportunity. It could be a passing thought. It could be a season where we have waves of opportunity that come to us. The sin of lust is the refusal to immediately deal with those passions. And the word that I have there is the word mortify fleshly passions. The word mortify means put it to death. Okay? It's a good biblical term. So the passion comes, and I know that that's wrong. And I could either embrace it and give into it and say, I'll just go with that and I'll entertain it and I'll play with it. <clears throat> or I can say, it's forbidden. Crush right there. Mortification, putting it to death. And by the way, the Bible talks about putting to death fleshly desires and replacing them with godly desires by the Spirit's enabling. But listen to what it says in James 1.15. He says, When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do you notice progression there? Lust conceives and brings forth sin. There's a progression. Okay? So it's opportunity... And the desire that's not dealt with properly begins to move me in a direction that is sinful. And that sinful direction could be in the heart and in the thoughts. I've not actually technically acted on that. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5 where he says, if a man looks at a woman to lust in his heart, he's committed adultery with her already. In other words, he sees someone... And in his heart, he begins to have passions that are wrong. And rather than him putting those passions to death and dealing with them biblically, he gives in to them. And he begins with intent to look to satisfy lustful passions. That's the idea. And so we see there's this progression. And the end is destruction. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Colossians 3.5 says mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness which is idolatry. By the way, the words inordinate affection and evil concupiscence are descriptions of homosexuality. Okay? And we talk about fornication. That is a description of lots and lots of different types of sexual sins but the bottom line is that when a person has a sinful lustful desire they can't give in to it or they've sinned and so when a person says well you know i'm going to be defined by what the bible calls sin obviously we have a huge problem and in second corinthians chapter 7 he addresses that very concept he talks about the fact that there needs to be a repentance in the heart when we have sinned. And I want you to listen carefully to the way that this is described because this is, this is fascinating. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, he says this, Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now, when he's talking about salvation here, He's not actually talking about this is how a person is justified. Like, I'm a lost person and now I've been saved from my sins. He's talking about this in terms of sanctification. But he basically says there's two kinds of sorrow. And he describes one as a godly sorrow that works repentance. And there is a sorrow of the world that works death. And probably one of the best ways to describe this is really, I would use it like this. It's a difference between being sorry that you got caught and being grieved by the sin itself and how it has put a distance between you and God and how it has affected the people around you and what that sin has done to your own soul, okay? Okay? The danger of being caught, or the fear of being caught, or it's basically an embarrassment that now I've been humiliated, something that nobody knew about, now they knew about, I've been exposed, and now people are talking, and I feel terrible about this. And the simple fact is that your grief has nothing to do with what the sin's done to your soul, has nothing to do with how the sins affected your wife, or your husband or your kids or your parents, or your pastor, or your church, or the people that you work with, okay? People in the world that have no fear of God, when they get caught, they feel bad about it, okay? They want to hide, they want to cover. That is a natural thing. But godly sorrow is very different. Godly sorrow is grieved by the sin itself. It's grieved by how the sin has affected my communion with God. It's grieved by how the sin has affected my soul. The truth is, if I'm a greedy person, if I'm an angry person, if I'm dominated by lustful passions, that is destroying my soul. Not just the relationships around me. It's destroying my soul. If I'm loving what's forbidden, am I loving the God who created me and loves me and has a purpose for my life? The answer is, of course not. Because these are two passions that are in complete contradiction. So one of the most tragic things that happens when we sin is it takes our heart off of what is good and it embraces what is evil and it's destructive. And so he makes this distinction between godly sorrow, working repentance, and the sorrow of this world that works death. So then he goes on and says this, Behold this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort. Listen carefully the way, (laughs) carefully, what carefulness it wrought in you. Now, There's a kind of carefulness that says, I'm going to do everything I can to cover my tracks, to make sure nobody knows what I've done, to make sure that I keep my story straight, to make sure that I don't expose myself in any way. That's a totally different carefulness than what he's talking about here. It's a carefulness that says, I confess it to God, I confess it to those that I need to confess it to, and I don't trust myself. I know I'm a person that needs accountability. I know I'm a person that can't go down this path anymore. I have to take radical steps in my life so that I don't go down that path again. And the the simple fact is that you may need somebody who is wiser than you, who's not entangled in the things that you're entangled with, who sits down with you and just honestly and objectively says, you 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 can't go to those places anymore. Why is that? Well, because you, you can't trust yourself in those places. That, that, kind of, that kind of friendship that you have there, it, it should be off, off limits because every time you go to that place with those people, this is what happens. And there's all kinds of different scenarios. But the idea is you recognize your own sinfulness and you recognize how broken you are and you recognize you need to have real accountability before the Lord. What clearing of yourselves. Now, this is an important statement. The idea is you're willing to do whatever is necessary to resolve the matter. Okay? Maybe you have to make restitution an issue. Maybe you swallow your pride and uh, sit down with some people and apologize to them. The fact is sometimes you may need someone to help you to know what is appropriate, what isn't in those situations. Someone who is not entangled in it because when we have been involved in sinful passions. Our emotions are dragging us in all kinds of different directions and we don't think clearly. We need somebody who's thinking clearly to help us through these things. But when he says what clearing of yourselves, the idea is you say, whatever I need to do to make this right, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do that. He then says what indignation. Now the, the the sorrow of this world is angry at the people that expose them. <laughs> Okay, I mean, it's just the truth. Okay, my wife caught me. And now, I, now I'm very angry with my wife because my wife went to this person and said, this is what I found out. and I don't know how to deal with this. And what do I do? My brother, he caught me. He, you, know, you understand what I'm saying? The anger is directed towards the one who's just exposed. What, 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 is ha- what has been true all the time? Okay, but when he says with indignation, he's talking about our anger, our attitude towards the sin itself. The truth is that if we step back and we're able to look at sin from God's perspective, what has dominated our thinking and has dominated our passions and has dominated the course that we have walked in life, it is evil. It is destructive. And when we see it as it is, we say, Why in the world would I ever want this? And that's the idea of a godly sorrow. I hate what is evil. What fear? The idea is that a person recognizes their frailty. There's no pride here, okay? There's no arrogance. What vehement desire, what zeal? You say, what is that talking about? The idea is that a person is motivated to address the issue. They're motivated to take the steps. One of the things that sin does, I've seen this with people many, many times, is that it, it kind of dulls their passions so that they don't care about anything? You ever talk to somebody who's an alcoholic? And they just they just drink themselves into a stupor all the time. And you say, you have a problem, and they're like, Yeah, probably. <laughs> you know, this is destroying your family. Yeah, it's possible. Do you realize your your life's gonna be shortened by this? Yeah, probably. You're like. Is there any emotion here? Do you care? You know what? They don't. They don't care. It's just like, whatever. I got caught. Life goes on. And the fact is that a person who has a godly sorrow, they say, I don't want this in my life at all. And there's a passion and there's a fervency and there's a motivation that says, I want this out of my life and I want nothing to do with it what revenge the idea is that and i I just I, i i give this illustration i remember we lived in ghana there were people that they made a living off of robbing others that was that was their day. that was their night job okay and they were really good at it i mean really really good at it i was just blown away you know you'd have you'd have a house and like on the third floor, there'd be, a, there'd be like one room that didn't have bars on the windows. And somehow, somebody would get in that window and they'd get into the house and they'd just clean it out. And you're like, how in the world did they do that? You had people, they would, they would watch a neighbor. Or they would watch someone who they knew had stuff and they knew their patterns. They knew when they went out, when they came in and who they spent time with. And they knew everything about what was going on. They watched them very carefully. And I asked this question, I was like, is a thief smart? I mean, in some sense, they are. They're very shrewd. They're taking the good gifts of God, a mind that can think through and plot and scheme, and they're using it for evil. They could take that same mind and they could use it for something good. I I mean, think about that. The same strength could be used for something good. Instead, it's being used for something that is evil. And the idea is a person says, I've been a thief. Guess what? I'm going to give. I'm going to work. That's, in fact, that's the way Paul puts it. He says, let him that stole steal no more, but let him work with his hands that he may give to them in need. That's what he's talking about. So he used these hands to take stuff from people and to hurt them and to harm them. And now he's taking it to do honest work and he's helping people in need. So when we talk about the difference between, we could say, temptation and lust. Temptation is opportunity. Lust is the giving into the opportunity. And the distinction between the two is, what do you do when the temptation comes? The answer is, you put it to death. What do you do when you've given into the temptation and you've realized it? it's called godly sorrow that worketh repentance? And it's these things. We have to confront sinful passions, refuse to excuse them, put them to death, refuse to feed those desires. And by the way, in the, in the verse, what does Jesus say? If your right hand offends, you cut it off. <laughs> now, he's not encouraging us to like, you know, have no hands. We'll, we'll talk about that. But what he's basically saying is, you got to take decisive action. You can't play games with sin. You can't tame passions that are evil. You have to deal decisively with them. The last question is, what is divorce? In verse 31 and 32, he says, I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. I'll put it like this. Divorce is a mechanism created by men to dissolve societal obligation to one's covenantal marriage vows. It was not created by God or commanded by God. Now, I will say this. In Deuteronomy, unquestionably, God does work with people who have gone down that path. Okay? He still loves people in such a condition. But the bottom line is, God created marriage because it's good. And divorce is the undermining of marriage in a sinful world, if you want to put it in that way. In other words, he didn't create this. He allowed men to do this and he gave certain limitations and he gave certain commands really for the protection of those who were vulnerable and who were abused and were treated wrongly because most certainly that was the case in many, many of these situations. It is always painful. It is always complicated and it is always destructive. And by the way, a person could have somebody who has treated them very wrongly, okay, Those things are all true for them. God does not condone sin, but he does forgive and pour his grace into the lives of people who humbly acknowledge their sin and turn to him. So we're going to get into that, not tonight in depth, but we will get into that. It is someone saying, I'm putting away my spouse. I no longer have societal obligation to them. And the law says, you are free. Well, there will be certain expectations as well, obviously. But that is the idea. And so Jesus is addressing this issue. So the question is this how do we respond to all this? Well, the first thing I want to say is this we've got to understand what the Bible teaches about these areas. They're very personal, they affect us in some very personal ways. Sinful choices in these areas are very destructive. We've got to walk in godly paths in these areas, there's no room for compromise. I think you really can see that when we talk about the distinction between lust and temptation. We've got to establish personal boundaries in our relationship. And we've got to be so cautious we don't push those boundaries. I think one of the most important things that we do with our children is we teach them, hey, this kind of interaction is not acceptable, okay? Teach our daughters, this is not an acceptable way for a young man or an older man appear to relate to you. It's not acceptable. He's not, your wife, he's not your husband. You're not his wife. That is not acceptable. And we, we begin teaching them at a very young age. And we teach our boys. This is how you relate to a young lady. This is how you relate to an older lady. This is how you relate to a peer. These are boundaries that need to be in your life. For your good. For your protection. For the protection of your testimony. For the protection of the possibility of opportunity. To get directed in a direction that you shouldn't so we could talk about that. There's no room to, to justify sin in these areas or to excuse it. And someone might say, well, you know, I know this is wrong and I know this is wrong. This is more severe than this. I'm only doing this. I'm not doing this. So I should say I'm okay. It doesn't work that way. Because what does Jesus say? It's not just here. It's here. Adultery is not just putting away your wife or cheating on your wife, or any of those scenarios, adultery is what's in the heart that says, I want something that's forbidden. I want something that's not allowed. There's no room to compartmentalize our lives. And it's very easy to do this. It's easy for me to say, well, you know, I I go to church. I tithe to the church. I read my Bible every day. And yeah, I know I've got this area of my life that, you know, it's secret. I know about it. God knows about it. Nobody else knows about it but you know I'm doing a really good job here and so this really isn't affecting over here. It's very easy to think in such a way. Yet what does the Bible say? It's the heart. Not just the action, it's the heart. We need to be honest and clean in the way that we relate to others. We need to treat others with honor and dignity. Think about the way that Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians. He says that we must possess our vessel in sanctification and honor. In other words, the way that I carry myself in this body, a flesh, it matters. And he says that no man go and defraud his neighbor. Defrauding means I'm taking something that doesn't belong to me, okay? I am am taking liberties that don't belong to me. And so the idea is we are treating others with dignity and respect when we relate properly to them in these areas, We've got to lay a foundation and maintain a very strong and vibrant marriage if we want to do this well. And we should pass this on to our children. So, Lord willing, next week, I was actually planning to go into this this week, but I don't have the time to now. We're going to talk about God's design for male and female. And so, we're, we, we, the way that Jesus addresses the issue, he says, Have you not heard? Have you, have you not read? that he made them in the beginning, male and female. He's making a point there. For this cause, a man leaves father and mother, cleaves to his wife. The two are one flesh. They're no more twain, but one flesh. What God hath joined together, let not not man put asunder. What that's telling me is that the way that Jesus addressed the issue is he says, don't you understand the purpose of marriage? So that's what we're going to do. Next week, we're going to talk about the distinction between, or not the distinction, God's purpose for male and female. And then after that, we'll talk about his purpose for marriage. And hopefully that will be very, very helpful to all of us. All right, let's bow together for a word of prayer and then we'll take our prayer requests. Our Father, we, we thank you for the time we spent together. I know that this is a topic that is, it's, it's sadly very needed, especially with our young people. We don't have a society that understands and embraces your design the way that it once did so i pray that you'll help us as a church and help us as families to really shape the next generation that they would understand the goodness of your design that they would understand that your ways are are truly marvelous and i pray that they would establish good patterns of life that will lead to healthy and strong marriages Pray that you bless our time together as we pray and lift up these requests to you. I pray that you knit our hearts together in Christ's name. Amen.